Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you here. And those of you who are gathered online, we are glad that you are joining us as well. Um, we've been doing this uh, prayer initiative over the last couple of weeks. And the first week, we were praying uh, for more of God's presence. Um, we've been experiencing his presence here in Sunday service. And it's not just here that we want it, although. Uh, we want more of it <laughs> while we're here, but we also want it in our individual lives. And then the second week, we're praying that we would each uh, individually and collectively hear the voice of God speaking to us, guiding us. And then last week was this simple thing of, of having the wisdom to know what to do and the courage to do it, which I think is just an incredibly useful phrase. Um, this week coming up, though, uh, the uh, kind of the fourth week in this initiative is we're kind of turning our attention, rather than being, um, you know, thinking uh, specifically about just uh, our relationship with the Holy Spirit, but asking God, you'll see this tomorrow in the text message, but we're just asking God, who's on his heart? And, and whether we're talking about uh, collectively as a church or individually, it's just I want to know who it is that's on God's heart. Who does he want us to connect with? And, and by the way, this is a very specific prayer. This isn't just kind of general, you know, oh, I want to take the city of Tulsa for God. or you know, It's not that. Uh, it's more along, God, who in my life is somebody that you want me to connect with? And, and will you guide me in that process? That's the prayer. And I'm going to tell you right up front, that's a dangerous prayer, okay? Um, but if you're if you're trying to have, um, uh, trying to connect with him and have more of his presence, if you aren't trying to hear his voice, if you're trying to have the wisdom to know what to do and the courage to do it, you've got to direct that somewhere. Does that make sense? And so this fourth week is the time that we're trying to direct that energy and saying, okay, uh, Lord, who is it that you, uh, is on, uh, uh, that's on your heart? Who is it that you want me to connect with? And so that's what we're, we're praying for this week. So keep that in mind. Uh, I think it uh, comes out about noon on Monday. You'll see that text. If you're not getting the text, um, let me know, and I'll make sure that you get on the list. Now, um, before, you know, as I'm getting rolling here, I had this introduction all written, <clears throat> and then in the last 12 hours or so, uh, the Lord had something else on his mind, <laughs> which is just so much fun. Uh, and it is. It is kind of fun when he does this. And um, I had this, this thought that occurred to me, and, and I want you to hear it because um, I, I, think, I think this is going to be a, a pretty good jumping off point. Worship is foundational to discipleship. Let me say it again. Worship is foundational to discipleship. In fact, I'm, I'm going to say it even, even harsher. If you get worship wrong there's a very good chance you're going to get your discipleship wrong. I, th I think it's that important. Worship is so foundational to your discipleship that if you get it wrong, then you probably get the whole ball of wax wrong in some way, shape, or form. And when I talk about discipleship, I'm talking about this idea about following God daily. And so around here, we use this definition that a disciple is somebody who listens and responds to God who listens through his word, listens through his personal, uh, his or her personal interaction in the conversation. What is God doing? I'm listening for that voice and I'm responding to it. That's discipleship. And worship, my definition is ascribing worth or value to someone or something. In this particular case to God. God, you're worthy of my time and attention. 
If you get that part wrong, then you get the listening for God part wrong and the responding to God part wrong. And so really what happens um, in that moment of worship is that you're putting yourself into proper position and posture, and that's crucial to our ability to listen and respond. Now, now think about this a little bit. I want to put myself in the right position before God. I'm thinking in terms of he is above, he is beyond, he is greater, and so he's worthy of not only my attention, but also my submission, my obedience. And that's a really hard word for me to say because I really don't like it, but that's what worship really is. I am positioning myself to be under him and his authority, position. And then secondly, I want to also posture myself, which means that I am ready to listen and to receive whatever he has to download. So if I don't have the proper position and the proper posture, how on earth am I ever going to expect to be able to follow him, to actually listen and respond? If I cannot have the right posture and the right position, I'm kind of, kind of doomed. Now, this is all kind of abstract. Let me see if I can put some illustration on it. Um, I noticed uh, a friend of mine, another pastor, uh, was praying over a group meeting once, and he started, and I'll never forget this, <clears throat> he started in his prayer. Now, l- let me set this up. I grew up in the church, okay? I, I, I've never known not going to church. So when I say this, this was one of those kind of, it's one of these moments, that's the sound of enlightenment, by the way, right? You get that kind of smack on the head. And, and I'm listening to this pastor, and the first thing he says, Lord, I worship you. And then he talks about God's virtues. He goes, you're good, and you're merciful, and you're kind, and we're gathered here, and we worship you. And I thought to myself, well, I don't often pray like that. At least individually, what I often do is I come with my checklist. Lord, I pray for this person, I pray for that person, I pray for my family, I pray for myself. But here he is in the opening segment of his, he just flat out says it, and it's so simple. Lord, I worship you. And that really got my attention because that is, that is, a, that is position. That is posture. I worship you. You're good. I heard, uh, I, think, I think it was Bill Johnson from uh, Bethel Church in Reading. He said, look, if I've got 10 minutes to pray, I'll spend six or seven in worship. If I got a half hour, I'd probably try to do, you know, 20 minutes in worship. Wow. Where you're actually just extolling the virtue of who God is and, and having that gratitude for the things that he's done, that's worship. <clears throat> I'll give you another example. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, this week. She, <laughs> she was having a rough week. Um, just, it wasn't necessarily her, but the people around her, she had a number of illnesses and just bad news, one right after the other. And so when I called and I was talking with her, I just, I, I just said, how you doing? She goes, I am blasting Maverick City music. Now, if you don't know who Maverick City music is, it's, it's a worship choir. That's the best way to describe it. The music is fabulous. You should probably listen to it. And she says, I am blasting that because I just need that positive worship. Ah, now I'm beginning to understand. Because I don't know about you, when I get kind of in that negative mood, 
Misery loves company. And sometimes we need to break out of that negative downward spiral, and one of the best ways you can do that is just to worship. It is acknowledging the fact that not only is there someone above and beyond you, but you also have someone who is above and beyond your circumstances. Does this make sense? So worship becomes this kind of crucial piece to our ability to listen and respond. Because when I'm in a lousy mood, I'm not listening. I'm listening to that voice that's inside of me, the one that's kind of untrustworthy. And what I want to do is I want to shift my attention, I want to reorient myself back to the kingdom, back to the king, in order so that I can listen and respond effectively and live as a disciple. And so without proper position and posture, you'll end up treating Jesus like a genie. And we all do it. If I just say the right words, if I just rub the bottle the right way, then boom, jackpot. Mm -mm, Jesus is not a magic wand. Let me say it um, as strongly as I possibly can. Holy Spirit is not your tool. He is your Lord. That was more profound than your reaction to it, okay? Holy Spirit is not your tool. Holy Spirit is your Lord. And so if we're talking about this daily life with Holy Spirit in in our series, Fire in the Fireplace, then we need to talk about worship. We need to understand how that fits into the overall picture this overall idea of what it means to be a daily follower of Jesus. And we're going to do this in a very odd place with a very strange story. And so I invite you to turn with me to the book of Leviticus. Again, we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 10. If you have a Bible or Bible app, you might want to punch that in. Leviticus chapter 10. Now, I need to set this up while you're, while you're um, turning there or finding it. <clears throat> Um, because if I don't set this up, it's, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense. So first of all, we need to understand that the Old Testament book, okay, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book of the Bible. Start at the beginning, work your way right, you'll come, come to it. But the book itself essentially is all of the instructions for Israel's priests. And priests facilitate proper worship of Yahweh, of God, Okay? So they're, they're charged with this task. They're supposed to lead, to facilitate worship, to connect Israel back, back to God. And so there's a whole series of instructions, and I will tell you they are very detailed, very detailed. And what, what happens in, in throughout that book is that Israel learns how to connect with God through a series of sacrifices and festivals. That's how they connect as a nation. And there's this orderly way of doing it, and God is very specific about how he wants things done so that they have a proper relationship. They have the type of relationship that will work for everyone. Now, the highest and holiest day of the, um, of the Jewish calendar is Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. It's the one day where the entire nation gets right with God. So all the things that, that happened over the year, um, 
sins of omission, sins of commission, sins you didn't even realize that you made. This is the time where Israel comes collectively and they atone for that sin by, by um, a series of, of sacrifices. And it's a special series of sacrifices. And we can read about it in Leviticus chapter 9 because that's the first day of atonement. So you have this incredibly important day. And, and, and I want you to think of it this way. Israel is rescued out of Egypt. They agree to be Yahweh's people at Mount Sinai, and that's where they receive the Torah, the law, which includes this book. And they atone for their sins, and they come into an aligned relationship with him, and this is the first time they do it in Leviticus 9. Sounds like a pretty big deal, don't you think? This is, this is what's establishing their relationship. This is why they're getting right with God to have this relationship. I will be your God, you will be my people. And all of Israel said, yes, we agree to that. So in Leviticus 9, it goes through a step-by-step ritual. And one of the things you'll notice if you read through it, and I suggest you do, is that at the end of each step, there's a phrase that says, as the Lord commanded Moses. So they would sacrifice and they would do something special with the blood and, and the, um, the meat. And at the end of each step, as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay? I have to keep this in mind. And in this relationship that's beginning to develop, to develop Moses is functioning as the prophet. He is the voice of God. And the priests are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. They are facilitating a response to God's voice on behalf of Israel. So they're listening and responding. Sounds like discipleship, right? So let me read this for you. This is Leviticus 9. I'm going to start in 23. So right at the end of Leviticus 9. Moses and his brother Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar, and when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. What a sight that was. I mean, you're talking about an entire nation who's gathered around this particular tent and there's an altar and the presence of the Lord. And it doesn't really say what the presence necessarily looked like, but it, it, it was such that it was visible to them and fire came out of it. Can you imagine what that would look like? I, 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 for some reason, I still have the whole Indiana Jones and the, and the, the lost ark in my mind and, you know, maybe not that dramatic. But what a sight that would have been. And they're, they're going through this and they're, they're atoning for their sin and they're creating this right relationship with God and it's exciting because God actually shows, shows himself, manifests himself in such a visible sort of way. Now it's crucial to understand all of this. Um, otherwise what follows seems very abrupt and random. And so the very next passage, this is Leviticus 10, Aaron's sons 
Nadab and Abihu, which are just great names, right? So if you're going to have a baby and you want boys' names, I'm probably going to recommend these two. No, just kidding. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers and put fire in them. Now let me stop right there and let me talk a little bit about this idea of a censer. Um, In other translations, it's a fire pan. But essentially, it was something for holding fire. Okay, I mean, we we get this idea. Now, I gotta tell the story because I think it's really quite interesting. Um, Because they put the fire in them and then it says they added incense. Um, uh, Lisa's uncle, uh, happened to be a Catholic priest. We're not sure how that happened because he grew up Baptist. So we don't know when that jump actually occurred, but he was a Catholic priest, and when he passed away, he had high mass for his funeral. <clears throat> and uh, our entire family was in this particular church. It happened to be one of these churches in around, which is really cool. Um, but um, they had placed uh, the um, uh, coffin kind of in the center of this room, and there was a procession of priests, uh, all of whom knew uh, uh, her uncle. And of course, there's one guy who's got this chain and this big kind of, it looked like a lantern, but they lit it and it was just pouring out all kinds of white smoke. And they swing it back and forth. And those of you who may have grown up Catholic, you've probably seen this before. And, and so they're swinging it back and forth and it's just billowing out the smoke. The problem was is that my mother-in-law Um, had a cold. And for whatever reason, that priest with the censure was right in front of her. And so she's in the midst of this thick smoke, coughing, like I swear a lung was going to come out. I felt so bad for her. But I talked to one of the priests afterwards, and he says, yeah, we put frankincense in there. It was a very sweet smell. I'll, I'll never forget it, but it was very interesting to smell that. And so the idea here, because when you see that they put incense on it, it's typically frankincense that they're talking about. And so I kind of have this idea of what's happening here, this idea of of incense and fire, and and look what what it says. Um, They took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. Okay, so far so good. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, Contrary to his command. Uh oh. Verse 2 So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Yikes. And we need to talk about this word unauthorized. The the King James Version actually uses the term um, strange fire which just sounds a little cooler than unauthorized. Unauthorized is kind of clinical. Strange is just like, ooh. The term itself, though, and I, um, I think this is, this is really helpful, would, would be better uh, translated as foreign. Something that is not typically there something that may not necessarily belong. Like sometimes we talk about foreign objects in the body, right? If you have a virus or if you have an infection of some type, your body will marshal its resources in order to expel whatever that happens to be, this idea of foreign. That's the word that's used here. And they offered foreign fire. I think that's a little more helpful because unauthorized just lacks a little bit of punch for me. And I think foreign fire makes a little more more sense here. And it was not just contrary to his command. Um, 
I, I think there's a better translation out there. It says, um, they all offered foreign fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. I think that's a little better way of, of translating that. Sometimes in the NIV and I, we, we, we disagree on, on translation, but you get this idea that he had not commanded this. And this is an odd event, though. Would you agree? I mean, it's horrible. Imagine this. This is the very first um, time the very first time that they're doing the, the Day of Atonement and these brothers who are the sons of Aaron do something that's very, very wrong. And there's a number of theories out there as to what it is they actually did wrong because the text isn't very clear. It just says foreign fire. And so there's a couple of possibilities here. Here's the first one. One is they use the wrong coals. You put the fire in your censure, in your fire pan or your fire pot. You take the coals. But you're only supposed to do that off of particular altars depending on what type of offering you're giving. So it could be the wrong coals. So the origin of the fire may have been incorrect. It came off the wrong altar. Second, they may have done this on the wrong altar to begin with. There are multiple altars with different purposes, and they offered on an incorrect altar. In fact, in Exodus chapter 30, uh, we read that uh, God says, do not offer on this particular altar any other incense or any uh, burnt offering or grain offering, and do not pour a drink offering on it. So maybe it was the wrong altar that they actually offered the incense on. They weren't supposed to do that. So that's number two. Number third, is it the wrong incense? Now, usually it's frankincense, but there may have been something else. Text doesn't tell us. It's unknown. And I think um, there's a fourth one out here. They did what was not commanded. They did their own thing, likely with good intentions. I'm sure that they had that in mind. Um, uh, but there's no, uh, everywhere else we read, as God commanded Moses. But God didn't command Moses to offer an incense offering at this point. And I think, in my opinion, that's what they got in trouble for. They did something right that was in their own eyes, but it wasn't something that God had commanded. And, and if you remember back um, this last summer when we were doing, we were talking about, or actually it was two summers ago, we were talking about Saul, King Saul. That's what he got in trouble for. He didn't do as the Lord commanded. He went off and did stuff on his own. Great intentions. And in some cases, it was the right call to make as a leader, but not, but not as a follower of God. And so here you have these two brothers, and they offer foreign fire. We're not even sure what the foreign fire is, but it costs them. Now, whatever the reason, fire comes out from the presence of the Lord twice on this day. In Leviticus 9, it consumes the offering. In Leviticus 10, it consumes the guilty. One was for forgiveness, and the other was for judgment. Sometimes, justice is required. But it seems to me that God always looks for mercy. seems to me that God typically looks for mercy. I am unqualified to discern what deserves what. 
So I trust him to make that. I, I got to admit, I, I look at this and I think this is the first time. And yeah, there's specific instructions. But why is it that God chooses to administer justice at this particular point in time? Because I, I got to be honest, this, this passage makes me really uncomfortable. Because this doesn't seem like the God who, who looks for mercy in this particular case. It's, he's all justice. Now I suppose that the easiest takeaway from this passage is don't be like these two. Right? Don't be like them. Don't, don't act like them. Do only as, you know, what was commanded. But I do think there's a little bit more. And I think it speaks to that discomfort that I have with this passage. If nothing else, if absolutely nothing else, we can learn something from this passage, and I think it's this. It underscores the serious nature of worship. This is important, and we shouldn't trifle with it. In John chapter 4, Jesus tells the woman at the well, time has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are what the Father seeks. There's a seriousness about that. Truth is hard, but it's good. That's who the Father is seeking, ones who worship in the spirit and in truth. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul wants men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Now, it's really interesting to me that the next verse is about women dressing modestly. Um, it's funny how uh, that part often gets discussed, but the same people who are discussing about women dressing modestly are not the ones who are typically having their hands up in the middle of the worship service. That's just my commentary on that one. When you come to church, are you, are you hanging with your church family and just checking a box? That's the real question. Or are you here to meet with the creator of the universe? And I'm not saying this to, to condemn or to make anybody feel uncomfortable. There's no threat here. But my question is, what is your position and what is your posture when you walk into the house of the Lord? When you walk in here with your church family? Is Jesus just a chaplain to your suburban lifestyle or is he the champion you will follow into battle? That's the real question. Which one is he? Is he chaplain or is he champion? And which is the one that you're willing to actually follow? And the second observation that I think we can make from this text um, comes in the form of a question. Why do you suppose God wants our worship? Why is it that, that God wants it for us? Because the fact of the matter is, well, let me, let's put it this way. Is he a tyrant who needs his ego boosted? As some have critiqued. Hardly. Worship is never for, for his benefit. Worship is always for our benefit. Always. Why? Because it positions us properly. It puts us in the correct order. He is above, we are below. He is beyond, we are finite. Right? We're not the center of everything. Have you noticed that? The truth is, humans are, were made to worship, and the fact of the matter is, everyone worships something. Everyone does. 
They worship something. Even the atheist does worship something, typically the self. And when I talk about that kind of worship, they're worshiping something. They give their time, their energy, their attention, sometimes even their wealth. They order their world around that particular thing. That's worship. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, then, is that thing that we're worshiping, is that really worth it? Is that worth our time? Is it worth our attention? Is it worth ordering our life around it? Is it actually worth it? And and the answer that I think that I've come to and probably others have is the Lord is, I'm not sure anything else is. And we have to be careful at how we're ordering our world. So what's my position and what's my posture towards those things and towards God? But I think all of this points to a third observation because I think it points to some really, really good news. And I want you to think about this for a moment. We see the harshness of the judgment against Aaron's sons. And it makes us uncomfortable. But there's a seriousness to the worship. Yes, there's all of that. And we need to check ourselves. Why are we coming to it? But the good news with all of this is God wants a relationship with you. This isn't something that we're begging him for. He's saying, no, 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 no. I want this relationship and I want it to be proper and I want it to be in the right order and I want you to have everything, not just a part of it. It's that kind of relationship. And I don't know about you, but I think that happens to be really good news. He wants you to get it right. He wants you to, mm, pardon the word, thrive. Worshiping and seeking his presence is crucial to your walk with him. And it's not like God is sitting up there waiting for you just to mess up and go, "Mm -mm, no, that's not right. That's not God. Instead, God is saying, no, 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 no. I want you to get this right because I have so much for you. I have so much in mind for you. I, I understood everything about you before you were born. I know what you're capable of, and that's what I want from you. If you position yourself and you posture yourself properly, look what can happen. The fire of the Lord comes and consumes the burnt offering and the people respond with joy and they fall face down. That kind of worship. And you don't have to be put together before you worship. It's in worship that you put yourself together. It's in worship when you order yourself properly. That's when God begins to point out things. Oh, I got so much better for you. And by the way, if you're in the middle of worship and you're feeling some kind of condemnation that you're not good enough or you're not smart enough or you're not holy enough, no, that's not from God. It's not from him. My experience, and I've said this before and I will continue to say it, is God who steps alongside of us and says, oh, I have something so much better for you. Don't settle for anything less. It's that kind of relationship. And so we read this uncomfortable story and we realize that it's just an illustration ultimately of a God who really wants the right kind of relationship with us so that we don't miss out on anything that he has in mind. So I don't know where you are today. I don't know. I don't know what you walked in the door with. 
you know, sometimes um, when we come to church, um, it's, yeah, the kids aren't dressed and they wore the wrong shoes and my, my spouse is sniping at me for this. And you come into church and then all of a sudden, hey, everything's, no. I know how it goes. But there's this part of me that says, what would happen if, you know, in that moment, we're singing that song about a good, good father. It's who he is, and we're loved by him, and that's who we are. What, what happens if we take that out of Sunday and we put it Monday through Saturday? When we just pause and we really think about what that actually means, to have that kind of relationship with a good father who's got good things in mind, and wouldn't I want to order my life around that instead of whatever else is out there? My job, my family, my friends. I don't know. But I think that's an experiment worth having. What would it be like to order life around that type of relationship with someone who really has my best interests at heart? who wants to see the kingdom come about and partner with me to help make that happen. I don't know about you, but that sounds a little exciting to me. Heavenly Father, as we pause here and we read through a very uncomfortable story, I recognize first and foremost that you are God. You're not my buddy from out of town. Yes, you call us friend, but you are still the creator and sustainer of the universe. And I want a proper relationship with you. I want to walk in here and position and posture myself so I miss nothing that you have in mind. I don't want to miss the destiny that you have for me, for Thrive Church, for any person that calls Thrive Church home. I don't want to miss out on that. So Lord, as we worship, I pray that you would continue to teach us, that you would continue to be present, that you would continue to not only challenge us, but encourage us. And I pray for every person that's seated here that they would experience more of your presence, that they would learn to hear your voice, that they would have the wisdom to know what to do and the courage to do it. They wouldn't be afraid of you, but be afraid of what they miss out when they're not with you. Thrive Church is your church, Lord. And once again, we just submit it back to you to do the work that only you can do in us and eventually through us. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.